When we hear about a major catastrophe, our natural impulse is to want to do something to help out. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, a travel operator from Portland tells us why he organizes groups to visit disaster zones. Volunteerism is a nice word, but I think it's probably more impactful that we care about them. That's one thing that resonates with anyone from New York City to, you know, Thailand to Japan. And after a year, the people's revolutions in the Arab world are still simmering. Coming up, we'll get an inside view on why Egypt is still in the middle of its people's revolution. A very heavy lid's been on a very hot pot for 50 years, and that lid has come off, and everything is bubbling up, and all sorts of tensions are being released. And residents of nearby countries like Morocco are taking notes, too. The truth of these revolutions is not religion, as the people are fed up. They have no future, they live miserable life, and they want a better way of living. Stay with us as we hear how people power can make this a better world, even if it's a work in progress. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Calling it the Arab Spring probably understates the importance of the popular revolutions of the past year. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear two insider views on the revolutions in North Africa and how they impact expectations in the rest of the Arab world. First, we're joined by Mr. Sho Dozono. He runs a large tour agency in Portland, Oregon. Just like he did last year, he's preparing to send a group of people to visit the region of Japan that was devastated by the big earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear meltdown. Uh, Shodo Zono, thanks for joining us. Well, Rick, thank you for having me. So tell us, you, you've had this uh, organization, a Flight of Friendship. Tell us what that's about and, and how it relates to the, the tsunami. You know, when tsunami happened, we were so shocked, and devastation was, you know, one of the largest earthquakes ever, and that tsunami, I think, really caught everyone off guard, and the, the damage that caused in that northern uh, coast of Japan was tremendous, and we just felt like we needed to go there ourselves to offer not only moral support, but actually volunteer work, so we put out a call for people to join us called Flight of Friendship, and this is probably about fourth of our efforts to react to natural or man-made disasters like 9-11. And we took 1,000 Oregonians to New York City in support of New York and took a group of travel agents to Thailand after the, the Indian Ocean tsunami. The Thailand was back in 2004? 2004, uh, December. Then we took a group in February of 2005. We took a group from Portland, Oregon, to help with the Katrina efforts. So you take these groups on flight of friendship missions you go there with Americans, is it to actually roll up your sleeves and help out, or is it to learn more about the problem and gain empathy and, and come home with a better understanding? Mostly to educate travelers, Americans in particular, who sometimes are geographically challenged to say, not all of Thailand is underwater, not all of Japan is radioactive, it's only a small portion, and Japan is still a safe place to go for tourism to Kyoto and other cities. But in our effort, we wanted to go right to where the damage happened, and we went to Sendai, the major city there near the uh, nuclear reactor and tsunami uh, uh, devastated area. There were 88 of us that ended up in Sendai, uh, people from Oregon, about 70 of us from Oregon, southwest Washington, a handful of people from Hawaii, a handful from California, somebody from Maryland, somebody from Washington, D.C. So it was a Amazing effort on, on, and we were the first American group to land in Japan to say we're here, we care about you, we want to do what we can to, you know, support you in your effort. And we partnered with Mercy Corps, which is Portland-based humanitarian organization. They allowed us to do some volunteer work for two days, cleaning up houses, schools, and hospitals, and so on. So what was the reaction of the Americans that you took there? How did it impact people to actually see the devastation caused by the earthquake and the tsunami in northeast Japan? I would say most people were quite speechless. They just You just couldn't describe what had happened because we were there in the end of May, so it was a couple of months after the tsunami, but uh, before the cleanup was actually happening. And it was a common experience because we all had some contact with Japan, love with Japan, the Japanese people and culture. So we just felt like we need to be there to help them, and we wanted to engage with the citizens uh, in the fishing villages, coastal villages that were devastated. So was a common uh, bonding experience. It was a wonderful trip for us, and I'm not sure that we made a huge impact on lives of the people that were impacted, but for us it was a very meaningful experience for us. But to have a group of Americans come back with that firsthand experience is of immeasurable value, I would think, uh, for people to really have an empathy with people who have been hit by such a uh, horrible disaster. And so this year, we're going back in June of this year, we're actually doing a concert on the first year observance uh, on March 11th, a concert to raise funds, to raise awareness. We did it last year. We raised $250,000 for Mercy Corps, 
And as a result of those efforts, we actually got 70-some Oregonians to go to Japan with us. Wonderful. Now, how can people learn about this initiative? Our website is uh, Flight of Friendship, and it's updated now. We're talking about our June trip, and we have a video that was sent from Japan to thank the Americans and people all over the world that went to assist. And we're calling this Oregon Tomodachi Recovery Fund. And we're Tomodachi means friend, and U.S. government with the naval forces were first on hand after the tsunami and lifted many, many people with helicopters, naval ship went to effort called Operation Tomodachi. So we're going back with that Tomodachi word as the key phrase. Man, when you think of the desperation of the people who have to live through this, victims right there living in northeast Japan, what was the reception like for you, the American, going to, the, to help out there in Japan? And obviously, we were very well received by everyone that we met. Uh, I think we worked with some nonprofit organization that allowed us to go into you know areas that uh, were devastated. But every person we touched them, they were just amazed that Americans came that far. I think the distance and being Americans as a large group made a very uh, strong impact on everyone that we met. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Mr. Sho Dozono, and Sho runs a travel agency called Azumano Travel in Portland. He's also doing a relief uh, initiative or a recovery initiative. And for more information, you can uh, get up to date on their work at flightoffriendship.com. Sho, it's been a year now since the disaster. How has progress been for the ecosystem, for the economy, for tourism in Japan? I think for tourism, it would have had a huge impact because of the fact that Japan as a, as a country became sort of, we well, can't go to Japan because of the earthquake and tsunami and, and the radioactivity. That was very unfortunate for any parts of Japan that was dependent on tourism as one of the economic uh, efforts. But you know, for us, we just want to make sure that people don't forget what happened to Japan. And we we're concerned about old people who have begun to lose hope. And we had a meeting just yesterday talking about despair it seems to be permeating the entire region there. People are beginning to lose hope, not because they're forgotten, because there's no jobs and really difficult to re- recover the economy. The cleanup has been done, so it's much cleaner. The roads are open, but uh, you know jobs are not there, and people are not necessarily coming back, so schools, houses are empty. So uh, it's been depopulated to a certain degree. How, yeah. how big of a zone is sort of no-go now? Is there still a huge zone that's radioactive? I think radioactive it's about 30 kilometer, 20 mile. You can't stay in those zones, but this is a pretty small area compared to the that's rest of the That's a pretty small area in Japan, yeah. yeah. And then you're talking about uh, tourism. I would imagine in the, uh, in the wake of this disaster, people just stopped going to Japan on vacation. Now, I would say you're overreacting if you don't go to Japan because there's just a, a few square miles that would be considered unsafe. Uh, tourism is an important part of any country's economy, and people who care about Japan and who are curious about Japan, the country's wide open for tourists. How is tourism in Japan apart from the Northeast Disaster Zone? The Japanese government is making a real effort to invite people from all over the world to visit Japan again, but that region is still being impacted. In fact, last year ago when we went, uh, one of the things we did do was go to a, a tourist destination, one of the top three destinations in Japan, beautiful scenic area at the seaside, and our group broke up into different volunteer groups, but one group did go on a tourism boat to just say that it's safe, it's a wonderful place to be. And we'll probably do some of that again in June. Now, you've been doing this for a decade now. You yes. took a, a flight to New York City after 9-11. You went to Thailand after the tsunami there. You went to New Orleans after Katrina. When you take groups to these places... Of what value would you say that is? Is it is it most value to help out, or is it most value just to humanize the disaster? I think in New York and Thailand and Japan, I think it was to say, you know, the disaster happened, but aftermath, the things are still safe. People really need your support as tourists. Volunteerism is a nice word, but I think it's probably more impactful that, you know, we care about them. That's one thing that resonates with anyone from New York City to, you know, Thailand to Japan. But I think it's getting the publicity out that it's safe to travel there. Now, that was quite courageous and groundbreaking. You went, you teamed up with the mayor of Portland and took 1,000 Oregonians to New York City shortly after 9-11. Yeah, three weeks after 9-11, and that was very well received in New York. And we marched in the Columbus Day Parade, and people just thought it was wonderful, that group of Oregonians, that many. We marched in the Columbus Day Parade down Fifth Avenue. It was a wonderful experience for mm. those who went. You're a travel agent. The National Organization for Travel Agents named you the Travel Agent of the Year just a couple of years ago. What would you advise Americans in regards to overreacting to natural disasters? Because I've found that 
Americans have a tough time keeping things in perspective. And whereas you don't want to be risky and you don't want to get in the way of important work, you can still visit countries that have had a natural disaster and be a responsible traveler. What's your advice in that regard? So our effort, like in, in last June, was we did take a radio personality that reported back daily on the web as well as on radio to say things are still fine. You know, they, they need some help, but you know things are not uh, as bad as the media might make it look like. So in Thailand, that was the sole purpose for it to go that we took the executive editor of Travel Weekly. He went with us and did a huge spread in Travel Weekly to say, Thailand is safe, you should come back and visit because people really need tourist dollars. So it's really about not overreacting to the same video overplayed over and over again. It happened many days ago, and you see it for weeks on end, and that's really mm-hmm. unfortunate for the people who end up being the victims. And, you know, there's this concept of voluntourism where you can make it part of your vacation to go and actually work in a place. But I think we should also remember that if there's a part of the world that's had a disaster and you want to help them out, apart from voluntourism, simply tourism is also a way to help out because that's just injecting a little bit of oomph into their local economy and resurrecting a tourist trade that oftentimes flies away and doesn't come back without any real reason to stay away. New York City was probably more of that, uh, you know, recovery for people to go back to, you know, shopping. And so one of the themes was, let's go to New York and shop. And right. some people did, and that's what we did. We ate at restaurants and went to theaters because theaters are going dark. Restaurants are closing because of lack of tourists. Now, you've been doing this for a long time. When you think about, for instance, Japan and one year after the horrible tsunami and earthquake, a couple hundred people may be participating in your flight of friendship, but there's a lot more people that don't have the opportunity to actually go there. Right now, for the recovery relief in Japan, what is the most helpful thing that caring individuals in the United States could do to help out Japan a year after the tsunami? Supporting the nonprofits that are doing the recovery work. So like I mentioned Mercy Corps. I know in Seattle area, the World Vision, and the people are still funding Japanese uh, NGOs or MPOs that are doing the recovery work. So I think that's still important. Uh, if you can't go there, $20, $100, anything helps. Because in Japan, it seems like government can do everything. That's not the case. You know, the victims still need, especially in remote areas, government isn't reaching out to those small fishing villages and so on. So I think funding in nonprofits is still important. And in so many cases, there's a spike of compassion and interest in media coverage, and then something else takes the forefront, and uh, people forget about something that falls out of the headlines, but the need continues years after the natural disaster. And unfortunately, Katrina, I think, still has a lot of work to be done, and certainly in the northeastern Japan, this will take about a decade before they can really recover, so a lot of work right. is still needs to be done. Mr. Sho Dozono, thank you very much for your inspiration. People want to learn more, they can check out flightoffriendship.com. Best wishes, Sho. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Rick. It's been more than a year since democratic revolutions in Tunisia and Egypt have inspired people's hopes for reform in much of the Arab world. An insider's perspective is next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at It all started in December 2010, when a 26-year-old street vendor in Tunisia who tried to make a simple living just selling apples from a cart couldn't take it anymore. Frustrated by years of harassment and humiliation at the hands of police and town officials, he lit himself on fire in front of the governor's offices. This dramatic one-man protest touched a raw nerve. Fellow Tunisians, angered by his death, 
took to the streets in protest. In less than a month, the president fled to Saudi Arabia for asylum. That was the beginning of what some have called the Arab Spring Movement. It spread to protest in Egypt that overthrew the entrenched Mubarak regime and led to a civil war and the eventual killing of Libya's strongman Muammar Gaddafi. In the past year, people in nearly every other Arab country in North Africa and the Middle East have been inspired to protest for democratic reforms. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, we're getting an insider's perspective on what it's been like to witness this popular uprising from outside your own window. Colin Clement has lived in Alexandria, Egypt for more than 25 years. He works for the French Archaeological Mission and serves as a translator and tour guide. And Aziz Begdouri comes to us from Tangier in Morocco. Aziz holds master's degrees in Islamic law and in European Union law, plus a PhD in international public law from universities both in Morocco and in Spain. He brings us an Arab perspective on populist pressures on the monarchy in his own country and in neighboring countries. Aziz and Colin, thanks for being with us. No, it's a pleasure to be Thank here. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Colin, you are living in Alexandria for 25 years. Yeah. And you looked out your window and, and saw this Arab Spring going on. We all saw it on TV, in, in yeah. mostly in Cairo. What was it like from your perspective in Alexandria? It was very frightening at times, very exciting to see the Egyptians sort of reclaiming their country. It was very, very moving to see the bravery that was, that was shown by young men on the streets taking on the police. Because I kept thinking of that one man standing in front of the tank on Tiananmen Square, that kind of you know, oh, there were heroism. Th- the same thing it felt like was going on in Egypt when people stood in front of the military in Mubarak. There was very, very brutal fighting, very brutal fighting. People were, you know, shot down dead, you know, around the corner from where I live. You know, a risk when we look at things from the United States is we see action on one square, and, and then we think, oh, the whole country's going that way, and a lot of times it's just that one square, almost a media circus. In Egypt, was the chaos and the tumult limited pretty much to a couple of squares, or did it engulf the whole society? No, absolutely not. At the end of January and February last year, when this, what has become to be called a revolution, but we'll wait and see if it actually is a true revolution, when then all this went off, it it would not have worked if it had only been in central Cairo. The fact is that it was throughout the country. So provincial cities, Alexandria was very important, Suez was very important, and the upper Egyptian towns along the Nile Valley, they also were rose up against the, the authorities. I got to wonder what it's like to be a Scotsman in Egypt. You've lived there for 25 years, so by most standards, you'd be considered a local. But do local people consider you a local? To a certain extent, yes. I mean, obviously, I don't You're look like Scottish an Egyptian. Guy, yeah. I, I kind of. But if you live there for a long time, Alexandria is a town with a long tradition of, of foreigners. It's a port city. There was a big Greek population, Italian population in the past. So you can become an Alexandrian um, in a way you can't necessarily become a Kyrene. You know, so. Right. Yeah, it was my neighborhood. And there was, you know, when the police withdrew from the streets and people had to, you know, create their own sort of civil defense. I would go out at night and stand in the barricades with the boys and find out what the noise was and the rumors of going around. And, and you'll be flying back to Alexandria shortly now? Yeah. And do you feel like things are stable now? Or what do, you, what do you envision in the coming months for Egypt? Very, very difficult to tell because for all that Mubarak left power, the army, which he represented anyway, are still in power. And for all that we've had elections, the actual legal status of that new parliament is still unresolved, and the army doesn't want to go back to barracks. So it could be a sham of a victory. You got rid of the, the figurehead, but the military is still there, and there's well, a lot of Well, this is why there was power. the continuing violence in November up in the run-up to the elections. There's an awful lot of people in the streets are saying no to military power. You know, we want the SCAF, the Supreme Council of Armed Forces, who are... They're not even governing the country. They're just ruling the country. So we could a skeptic make the case that the, the figurehead is gone, but the, the fundamentals of what's keeping the people down have not changed? Yes, absolutely. I mean, not just a skeptic. It's, that's that's yeah, the I case. Mean, the, the head of the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, which is in the position of the president, this is the army. This is people who are put in their positions by Mubarak. Mubarak. Tantawi, who was the president of this council, was his Defense minister. If you and your friends were out in the streets and you lost some loved ones in this whole thing, and then this is the result, that's enough to really get oh, you frustrated. Yeah. We'll talk more about that in a moment. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the Arab Spring from an Arab perspective. Aziz, you're coming yes. to us from Morocco. Yeah. Now, Morocco mm-hmm. is a different story. All across Africa, you've looked at other countries that have lost their leaders. They've uh-huh. had their popular uprisings. Yeah. You have a king. You're an Islamic nation. How yeah. do you see the Arab Spring from a Moroccan perspective? Okay, the Arab Spring, that we see it, that it is a revolution of the people in the Arab world. That revolution 
come out from the people. That revolution was not planned. The cause of it is the injustice. We're talking in general. In general, the, the general. Arab, the injustice. Yes, the beginning, because how it comes, because it comes was not expected, the Arab Spring. Nobody planned it. Right. It was just a guy who's selling fruits in the streets in, in Tunisia. Right. Just a military soldier. He kicked his, his stuff, and he stepped on his fruits. And that becomes sort of the poster child of this whole revolution. Yeah. You what can this make that guy, one image. Exactly. He kills his hope of living. This guy, what he did, he went and he burned himself. When he burned himself, it hurt the feeling of the people of Tunisia. The people of Tunisia were already very unhappy with the regime, with the system. That's interesting. So there was this sleeping exactly. uh, energy that, exactly. did, that needed to be woken up. Yeah, because the Arab world has lived under dictators for a long time. And this is one image that's very easy for people to, to uh-huh. put up and say, look what's happening. Mm-hmm. Revolution always comes through the history, always comes when there's so much oppression. Until they come to a limit, people say, we have to go and fight. We don't have hope. And thanks to that, we see this revolution, which started in Tunisia, in Egypt, which was another big dictator, Mubarak, who was nobody ever even think or dream that somebody can defeat Mubarak. He was impossible. He ruled his country with a very strong hand. Nobody can talk to him. So it was the end that happens to him. He was thrown in jail. And that means anybody could be thrown in jail. That must empower other people to yeah, think that. Because the power of the people, that's the proof. The power of the people have no barriers. No barriers. Yeah. Anything can happen now. First of all, Egypt yeah. had Mubarak. That's, that was horrible. And uh-huh. you have Tunisia. Of course, we know about Libya. Libya. Then Libya, another dictator. Yeah. The same thing happened. If we look at those countries... Every end of each of those dictators had a different ending. One was escaped. The other one thrown in jail. One died. Tunisia, Egypt, and Libya. And uh, where is Algeria in this? Algeria, it's probably coming after... So there's a reason for the people of Algeria to be angry. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's needed. Because the changes is needed in the Arab world. What about about Morocco? Morocco is a country, it's completely different. That's the truth. Because Morocco, as I say, is what are the causes? The causes because people were oppressed. Right. There's poverty, the unemployment, people have no hope, the educational system, health system, you everything can, very can, poor. You can make it like the man selling fruit in Tunisia. This is uh-huh. the reality of all these people. Mm-hmm. But you're saying, and the military can come and kick his stand away and ruin his life. Uh-huh. That's the easy way to understand the yeah. problem. But you go to Morocco, Morocco, you say it's different. The situation in Morocco, the economic situation, the social situation right now in Morocco is completely different. Better. Much better. Morocco since the 1999, 30th of July, 1999, when the King Mohammed VI being enthroned, he started the mechanism of developing and changing Morocco. And thanks to those progress that Morocco has now during those 12 years, that really served the system to be safe. You're saying that Mohammed VI, the new king, he's been in power now for 10 or 12 years. 12 years. You're saying that he was smart to deal with this oppression, uh-huh. and now today he has no reason to be nervous. Okay. Improvements always needed. Yeah. But we didn't have the causes. Do you think the events of the last year, the Arab Spring across North Africa, are going to help Morocco make these changes without a revolution? Morocco, that's another thing which is very important. The king and the government and stuff like this are aware of the issues. The king is progressive. He's more open, liberal. He started this mechanism uh, since 12 years. And this has served to him to save the regime. Also, at the same time, it's pushed the government and the king to accelerate the changement. To accelerate. And there's big exactly. change because as you told me when I visited you in Morocco, uh-huh. the king's father was so traditional, uh-huh. nobody knew what his uh-huh. uh, wife looked like. Uh-huh. And, uh, exactly. That's the, and his son, uh-huh. the new king, yeah. Mohammed VI, mm-hmm. he married a commoner uh-huh. woman. She's a public person. Yeah, yeah. This is a big change for women yeah. in Morocco. Yeah, yeah. An example of the changes happening. Exactly. Because Morocco, apart from this changement that I can tell you in detail, socially, economically, that Morocco has known... Our system, legal system, has our laws and, and legislations has been nonstop changing during the 12 years. The biggest change was in the family code that gives pretty much equal right between men and women. 
in marriages, divorces, in heritage, wills, custody. So big reforms happened in Morocco in the family code. So if you're a leader in the Arab world, you can uh-huh. kind of maybe learn a lesson that change will happen. You can you can uh, manage the exactly. change like Morocco exactly. or exactly. the change will be put on you like Tunisia. Cullen, what is your take on what Aziz was I, saying? I, think Aziz is, I mean, Morocco is happily distanced from the corrupt heartland of, of, of the Arab world. And I think the advent of Mohammed VI was terribly important because it's a generational thing. And I think mm-hmm. a, a lot of what's been happening in the Arab world is a younger generation coming up who no longer accept the old lies. These are a bunch old, of old guys absolutely. that are getting kicked out. Think yeah. of the old guys. Mubarak. How did, Mubarak was in his early 80s. He's been around for 30 years. Gaddafi mm-hmm. was an old guy. Gaddafi yeah. wasn't actually that old because he took power when he was so young. But, but he, he hasn't been, been for 42 for 40, 40 years. Ruling for 42 yeah. years. <laughs> That's incredible. How old is your king? Uh, he's uh, 47. Oh, okay, so he's about like Obama. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I don't know how old Obama is. But not that... <laughs> This is a new generation with new technology that enables communication. Yeah. This whole communication thing is exciting. Does the government control the Internet in, in Egypt? They cut it off the morning of the 28th of January. They cut the Internet off and they cut the mobile phone service off for four or five days. So they can do that? They, they can do that. They did Does do that, that effectively yeah. cut off communication with all the disruptive forces? Uh, well, no, because it was over that four or five day period mm-hmm. that, in fact, the whole yeah, state remember. was taken down very bloodily. So they were unable to stop things by. It was a desperate attempt, between. but it was too, you know, it was kind of too late by then. I mean, the, the, the lid was off and we were on the streets burning the police station sign. We? Well, I wasn't burning police stations then. But I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I also, I mean, the technology thing, the, the mobile phone, the phone camera. Uh-huh. It is astounding, oh, yeah. the yeah, power of the phone been, camera. Because it used to be in Egypt, if you got into trouble with the police, you were disappeared, okay? And nobody would hear about it. And you'd nobody hear about it. Nowadays, that mm. is captured. And there's yeah. so much evidence on phone cameras. Disappeared. That was the word mm. to keep down the people in the 80s and the 90s, mm-hmm. all across Latin America mm-hmm. and so on. People disappeared. Okay. And nobody... Now you don't be disappeared. Well, you no. can be, but it's but, a lot more difficult. But it's going to be yeah, headlines. Yeah. Someone will catch you on mm-hmm. the phone being... Mm-hmm pulled into the back of the truck, you know? Wow. That makes a big difference. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Colin Clement and Aziz Bagdouri. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Donna's on the line in Bristol, Rhode Island. Donna, thanks for your call. Okay. I have one question for you. What was daily life like for the citizens during the Arab Spring? Could you describe that? Colin. That's hard to say because, you know, first of all, the Arab Spring is still going on. It's not really a spring. It's been a year, and, mm-hmm. it's, and it's affected many different countries. From my perspective in Alexandria, I mean, there were moments when life was very difficult. One stayed indoors. You know, you, you shopped what you could get, and then, you, you know, you stayed home. And then there were other moments when it was just sort of back to normal. How could the economy carry on with what we saw on TV? Well, the economy is sort of falling apart. That's the thing. I mean, prices are rising. This is why the tensions maintain because the problem at base, one could say, well, one of the problems at the base was the economic situation, the decreasing poverty and rising prices and the great difference between, between rich and poor, which had just become Does the military play that to their advantage? The military isn't playing anything to its own advantage at the moment because I don't think the military is clever enough. I mean, <laughs> you know, they, they could do very, very straightforward, simple things in order to maintain their grip on power and still appease the people's demand for a more representative assembly. But as for, you know, Donna's question, it depended. Some moments extremely tense and you just kept your head down. Other moments and, you know, everyone wanted to get back to work. You know, when the tanks came on the streets in Egypt after the police had sort of retired and disappeared, people were very happy because, you know, everyone's got to make a living. They've got to feed their children. They want to get their children back to school. They want everything to be back to normal. And I suppose in a way the army has tried to benefit from that, from the people's desire for normality by demonizing those elements who want to continue the revolution, who've continued the protestations in the streets against the military rule. If Donna wanted to travel in any of these countries, where is it recommended to travel now in the Arab world? Uh, Morocco. Morocco. (laughs) Morocco is about the the major places. Yeah. I mean, I think it depends if you're an experienced independent traveler, mm. because this is a great time to visit Egypt because they are yeah. dying out for tourism. They mm. want it. And also you'll have the archaeological sites, mm. the temples and the pyramids to yourself, you know, rather than with the hordes mm. of tourists. Because well, I heard that out. the minister of tourism in, in Egypt is actually opening up the lower Nile to river cruises for the first oh, time still, in, in years. I saw an advert just before I came over here to the States for uh, a flight from Paris to Aswan, huh. which is in, right in the south of Egypt. 
of seven-day cruise on the River Nile up to Luxor with the side visits, all the temples, and then flight back to Paris for 360 euros. Wow, so about, just about over, $400. Just over $400. Whoa. Would, and would you feel comfortable with your loved ones taking a trip like that? Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I stayed there the whole time. Granted, in the, the middle of the actual revolution itself, you know, when right. the shooting was on the street, my you know, 14-year-old daughter, I put her on a plane and sent her home. I sent her back to France, rather. But is she back in Cairo? But she's, in, no, she's in back in Alex. You know? She's right. you know, back in school. You know. Well, Donna, that's kind of encouraging. Yes, it is. Thanks for your call, Donna. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. And Jan's on the phone in Henderson, Nevada. Jan, thanks for your call. Hi. How are you? Doing well. Do you have a question for Cullen or Aziz? We traveled in 2010 for 11 weeks through the Middle East, and all the people were warm and welcoming and regardless of all the things that you'd heard about how Americans were thought of in, in Muslim countries, we didn't see that at all. But now in the news, it talks about the Christians, especially in Egypt, being persecuted. I was wondering what it's like for an American Christian to travel in Egypt right now. Well, it does make me nervous, too, when you think that Christian communities are being terrorized within the Muslim world in some cases. What is the situation, Colin? The situation in Egypt is that, you know, a very heavy lid's been on a very hot pot for 50 years, and that lid has come off, and everything is bubbling up, and all sorts of tensions are being released. There has always been certain level of sectarian strife within Egypt. There's always been, absolutely, a certain persecution of the minority Christians within that country. There's no denying it. And there's been a very, very ugly incident happened. This is probably what you're referring to in October when there were some 27 Coptic Christians were killed in a demonstration. They were essentially run over by the army. That wasn't an act of, of deliberate sectarianism on the behalf of the Egyptian peoples. It was overreaction, bad management, just general brutality on the behalf of the army. And it also clearly doing it against a constituency that they think they don't have to worry about. From your point of view, as an American or as a Christian, yeah, frankly, no one knows you're an American unless you tell them. You know, you, you don't just, think so. <laughs> well, no, not unless you're going to wear a you know Uncle Sam outfit. You know? I mean, I could be an American as That's well. Right, I mean, yeah. you, you can't see what I look like, but I walk down the street here, and nobody. Well, America is full of everybody. Let's face right. it. And the fact you're Christian, I mean, there's that makes no so, odds whatsoever. Okay. So, if you're going to be organizing in a minority community anywhere in this part of the world, you might have some concerns. But as a visitor, as a visitor, no. I mean, I, I don't think we should go overboard on, on this. I mean, it is one of the problems that Egypt has to handle. I would love to go to Egypt right now. I think it'd be an exciting time we to go there and talk to yeah, people yeah, and so yeah. on. Aziz, would you be comfortable in, in I, Egypt? I will now? be comfortable. All right, we can go together. All right, Jen, thanks <laughs> for your call. Thank you. <laughs> okay. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about living through the Arab Spring from the perspective of men who, have, who are living in Egypt and Morocco right now. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. We've got more in just a moment. It's an insider's perspective on the populist pressures for democratic reforms in the Arab world, right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Colin Clement comes to us from Alexandria, Egypt, and Aziz Begdouri lives in Tangier, in Morocco. Aziz, when you think about this, we always call it the Arab Spring. Mm -hmm. Some people call it the Arab Awakening. What do you call it? Well, now it's called the uh, Arab Spring, but the real name should be the Arab Awakening, because now I think, uh, apart from the awakening, is the Arab people throw the fairness that they used to carry. Everyone was afraid of the system. Oh, they're throwing their fear away. So away, yeah. Awakening to freedom. Yeah, I, because I, those regimes were impossible. This yeah. reminds me, if the United States had not invaded Iraq to get rid of Saddam Hussein, yes. he would have been threatened right now, just like Mubarak. Uh, uh, definitely. I think quite clearly, yeah. Yes, definitely. Do you really definitely. think the people of Iraq could have risen up and gotten rid of their own dictator just like they did in Egypt? On the 25th of January of last year, which was the police day when the uprising began in Egypt, that very same day, Hillary Clinton, who is a politician that is respected not just in the United States but around the world, said that she reckoned that Mubarak was still firmly in control. Underestimating 
the power Completely. of this. So, <laughs> but I, I think Aziza hit the nail on the head by talking about that peoples have got rid of their fear. And mm-hmm. that was That's one of very, the most striking and, yeah. and, and really moving things yeah. to see because people were putting their heads above the parapet. And like two weeks before, had they done that, their head would have been removed. Mm-hmm. You know? And they were going out in the street day after day, risking their yeah. lives just by demonstrating, just by chanting these, these slogans. So it was fear that kept the people down. Ah, definitely. Until now. Mm-hmm. Oh, unquestionably. Oh, yeah, for all these years. And the people were, you know, calling in an indirect way for the American values, mm. which is freedom, justice. So American values are even bigger than America. It is just, oh, clearly. this is what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, you can also <laughs> call for American missiles and American troops. Well, there's two things. That's separate, an interesting thing. Different things. Think about Libya. What did the Moroccans think uh-huh. when, when Europe and America came involved with Libya to get rid of yeah. Gaddafi? Did Morocco say good or did Moroccans say, this is not the America we want to see? No, 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 no. Morocco stand on the side with America and one of the first countries that signed approving America and NATO to attack Libya. And the Moroccan people also, because we, we get Libyan channel in Morocco. We hear his speeches. For us, we know he's a ridiculous leader. And it was a shame that a country that has very rich natural resources and their people not having freedom, not having richness, not not enjoying their richness. No, they are not enjoying because that. of this dictator. Of the dictator. Aziz, it's very complicated to me because, of course, we celebrate America's ideas of freedom and justice and, yeah. and liberty. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, the United States has kept some of these dictators in power. Yeah, Mubarak exactly. would not be there. Mubarak yeah. is the example of the that's, evil. That's that's the mistake of United States. So now, how do you see America's position? America's position. I mean, it's a mistake of the past. That the way we should look at it. The mistake of the past because those people they used to serve America in the past. Okay. And America, to protect their interests, they didn't mind that these people keep oppressing their people and supporting them with money and everything and knowing that this money doesn't go to their people. Colin, you lived 25 years under Mubarak. Mm. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, certainly, the Egyptian regime was propped up very strongly by American money. I mean, it's the second biggest recipient yeah. of, of aid after Israel. They get, you know, the military gets mm-hmm. $1.3 billion per annum. So the military is not keen to lose that money, so it'll do what America wants. So we still yeah. have some leverage with the Egyptian military? You have huge amounts. I mean, the country has huge amounts of leverage. But another thing I'd like to point out as well is that, that I, mean, I think it was General de Gaulle said that there's no friendship between states. There's only interests. Hmm. And clearly, there was also an uprising in Bahrain and the uprising in Bahrain was quickly and bloodily suppressed with the help of Saudi military and tanks. Now, Bahrain is the home of the Seventh Fleet. Now, we didn't hear an awful lot of support now, for the uprising in Bahrain. Let me just uh-huh. follow this. So, Bahrain is very convenient for us because that's a, a base for us. Yeah. Uh-huh. But we wouldn't want to be involved directly, but Saudis came in. Saudi is the great ally of the United States. So and they Saudi can do the dirty work in Bahrain. Want, Saudi is not enjoying these, these democracy movements. This must be nerve-wracking if you're a Saudi prince. Absolutely. And yet the Western media chose, by and large, to just let the Bahraini uprising be quietly squashed. Makes you want to learn more about this. Mm-hmm. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the Arab Spring from an Arab perspective. We're joined by Aziz Begdouri from Morocco and Colin Clement, who lives in Alexandria, Egypt. Aziz, when you think what inspires the groundswell, the grassroots power of the people, mm-hmm. do they want to become more westernized or do they want to become more Islamic? I think the people today, they taste the freedom. When you try something you didn't know it before, you just grab it. And they don't want to lose it now. So they have the freedom. They want to be free people. Okay. So, well, that... so they're adopting indirectly the American values, freedom, justice. Today, what the people in Egypt, they're wanting a death penalty for Hosni Mubarak to apply justice for him in order to be an example for whoever coming next. There's no other Arab leader can be worse than these three guys that just passed. Oh. <laughs> Colin, your turn. So wait, <laughs> no, no, no. I think, I think uh, no, no, no. What I mean, the ones we have now, uh, I mean, the ones still in power. Uh, Assad. Uh, 
So what I say is the group we have right now, mm. the big lesson for mm. any yeah. future leader. Sure, sure, sure. Oh, but yeah. I come, and the thing. The fear is gone for the people. Exactly. It, but and I, it's time and that, that for moves, democracy. Because that, now <laughs> the Arab world is asking for democracy. Maybe it's just the way you phrased your, your question there, Rick. Right. But you know, do they want to become more Western or more Islamic? That's not the issue. No, no, not the issue. It's not, the issue, I think, as Aziz is trying to express it, it's a question of it's, it's some sort of freedom. They want to work out their own system. If they On want to terms. choose to vote in people who claim to be mm-hmm. Islamically inspired, mm-hmm. that is their choice. And those people then work it out from there. It, it's not a straight dichotomy between Western liberalism and Islamic right. obscurantism, which is mm-hmm. often the way it's presented in the press. Mm-hmm. In I'm so glad you said that because last time I was with Aziz in Tangier in Morocco, I went into the uh, uh, Grand Soko, yeah, <laughs> and I just had a, I had a revelation these people in Morocco are succeeding. They're making it happen. It's a people sort of energy. And they don't even think about the United no. States. They're not trying to be like the United States. They're not disliking yeah. the United States. Yeah. They're simply being free, free. and getting their act together. <laughs> exactly. And they happen to have a king who's pretty mm-hmm. cool, mm-hmm. Mohammed mm-hmm. VI. Yeah, correct. And, and the people today wants to, to live, to be free, to get education, to get health, to have work, to raise their family as anyone else in the world, without telling them this is Western, this is Islamic. Okay, so I learned now. That's not American, that's just human. That's (laughs) true. Human, yeah, exactly. No, but those are the real values of the United States, is democracy. Democracy. Now in the Arab world, everyone wants democracy. The people want freedom. Whoever wants to create a political party should be welcome. There is elections. Whoever make it, he can rule. He has his turn, four years. If you are Muslim, you can rule. But after four years, there's another elections. If you don't give good results, out. And Egypt's challenge right now is to fast track that maturity politically. So yeah, I mean, it's, good. it's very difficult. We've had elections just very recently. But you have to think, it's in a country there have been no meaningful elections for 50 years. No parties. People don't, no parties have existed, but they've right. been, you know, shams. useless shams yeah. and, and, yeah. and cronies and, and, and parts of the establishment. So this takes time. We have I mean, to be one a of, patient. Mm-hmm. A very good friend of mine, early 50s, surgeon, you know, very well educated. He, you know, he said, I don't know what to do. And, you know, this is an educated man. Politics, he said, literally, I put it in a box and stuck it in the cupboard called corruption, and I ignored it for all of my adult life. Now I have to take this box back out and understand it. Think of the the mechanics of going into a poll booth, polling booth, if you've never done it before. So this is just... If you're illiterate. Yeah, this is a new thing. It's Uh, completely new. Involving citizens Mm. in the political process is a brand new thing for... How many million Egyptians? 80 million Egyptians. 80 million well, people. They're not all voting, but, but yeah, I mean, the, big the, the enthusiasm for yeah. it is there. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're learning about the Arab Spring from a perspective of people who live in Morocco and Egypt. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Patrick's on the phone in Indian Town, Florida. Patrick, thanks for your call. Good to be on, Rick. Yeah, I, I lived in Tunisia for like 10 years, and it was interesting. I started receiving these things from Tunisia about a year ago on Facebook from friends. And at first, I didn't know what was going on, and then I happened to see what was happening in Tunisia. And it was interesting following it, because I first saw them criticizing the government, which was very unusual there. You had a lot of freedom, but you just couldn't criticize the government. And they started doing it. One friend I found really interesting, they kept shutting off people's Facebook accounts. And he was a very good linguistic person. He spoke like 12 languages. And he got his name printed in Hebrew letters so it would get through the the censors. And he was still sending stuff out, telling people what was happening outside of the country. So that was very interesting. This is interesting about media. How do we understand what's going on? Aziz, what media do you rely on to understand the dynamics of this exciting of this? time? Ah, the good thing in Morocco, we have satellite dishes. And personally, I'm, you know, addicted to the news, international news. But then I... But who do you trust? Do you, do you go CNN? Do you go I, Al Jazeera? I, I go all of them, to be honest, because I'm multiple languages, but mainly CNN, uh, and Al Jazeera and uh, Spanish TV and but you, you uh, French would know channels. That, you would know that CNN would have a particular viewpoint and Al Jazeera would have a particular viewpoint. Yeah. And then you, as an exactly. educated person, bring it together. It, 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 together, exactly. Colin, what do you do for media? You know, read newspapers, go on the net. I mean, I mean, absolutely. There's one of the reasons these things have all happened now is undoubtedly the change in communication, the abilities of people to communicate via the net and receive information from the outside that hasn't been slanted by their own corrupt governments with a mm-hmm. monopoly on the 
the old Ministry of Information. That's made mm -hmm. a huge, huge difference. Mm -hmm. and, it, of course. and it astounded me just how much traffic was going on for the Westerners as well. Mm -hmm. who were missing it because obviously the young folks are writing to each other in Arabic. Mm -hmm. uh, ah. So, you know, too many Western journalists don't actually have a command of the language, so they don't really know what's going on. A Western journalist who is not... I mean, there are good ones out there who do have a command yeah, of the language. Yeah, but if you're trying to be a journalist not speaking uh, Arabic, you're, you're, you're going to be really made a fool. I mean, this, mm -hmm. it was very remarkable. As I mentioned earlier, I think there was a whole generational shift which has caused this, and it's a generation which has been switched on to this means of communication. And also, the satellite dishes beam in another mm -hmm. vision of the world. Oh, yeah. And young folks see that they do not have to live in the same old muck that oh, their parents were older put up people with. would be a little more docile because they're not as adept with the technology. Yes. Mm -hmm. So they'll just listen to whatever the government tells them oh, to listen yeah, to. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. What do the young people listen to in Morocco now? What? Now with Internet, it's, it's another way of revolution. People connected to, you know, Facebook generation. and So Morocco, to come back to Moroccan, legally changed a lot of laws, but... It comes this on the right time to change the constitution mm -hmm. that forced the Moroccan government or the king also to call to reforms yeah. in the constitution. So he accelerate more the improvements, wow. accelerate more the reforms. So adapt more constitutions. He gives more power to the government, uh, more power to the prime minister, more to the parliament. This is the Arab storm. There's so much happening. Yeah. It's quite exciting. So, Patrick uh, from Florida. Patrick, do you have any more thoughts? I, you had a question, I think, about uh, religion. Um, yeah. It, one of the things that kind of has come out of that afterwards is some of the people I knew that were very involved in the, the revolution feel a little bit betrayed now that, you know, things are becoming more Islamic because that was not their agenda at all. And so that's another issue I find interesting, you know, how... How do you have, like, more of a separation, what they would want, more of a kind of like the U.S., where, you know, our calendar is based on Christianity or something, but we don't actually run our country through religion. That's what they want. Where well, that's an interesting quandary. If somebody yeah. wins their democracy so they're free to choose their form of government and they choose a theocracy, then... Is it right for us to step in and say, oh, no, we didn't mean that kind of freedom? Maybe they are free to choose a theocracy. You have somewhat of a theocracy in Morocco, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is your thought about freedom and a theocracy? Can you be a free country and still have a, a religious government? You can. You can. Morocco, Islam, is the religion of the state. But the people are free to practice or not to practice. Morocco is more liberal. And you can adopt, you know, democracy. So Morocco, we have 33 political parties. One of them is Islamic and others from the right wing and the left wing. And, and So could you become a Lutheran and, and still vote? And, and, and vote if, in Morocco? And, yeah. Well, if you are Moroccans, yes. I mean, we have Jewish. Yeah. So you Moroccan you, Jews, so they vote is, and they are in the government and they are in the parliament and they are one of the king advisors is Jewish, André Azoulay. Is there any sort of religious power driving the Arab Spring, Colin? No, I mean, I think it's a, no. we're over-obsessed no. with the fact that these countries are Muslim. What is wrong with them being Muslim? Yeah, that just, exactly. I mean, the uprisings in Greece. We don't, we don't say they, they're Christian Did uprisings. anyone talk about being Christian <laughs> uprisings? And then also the notion that in American politics it isn't touched by religion. It's absolutely thick with religion. Oh, I mean, our country, your yeah. Your previous incumbent, George Bush, was forever making references to God directing him. The front runner of the Republican nomination happens to be a Mormon. And there are many people saying he cannot be possibly a president because he's but a what Mormon. But what if Obama was a Muslim? Well, there was, I mean, yes. people talk like they should throw him out. People, yes, <laughs> exactly. And then we want people to have freedom of religion. It, he was What's some, up with that? someone accused of being a Muslim. And this was considered slander. Why is it slanderous to be a Muslim? Well, that's interesting because I was thinking of it as, you know, this whole Muslim world is up in arms. It, it happens to be the Arab world, which happens to be Muslim. But these are... Mm. Fundamental yeah. justice issues. Patrick, what an exciting conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It was good to be on with you. It's a, it is a great subject. <laughs> Take you. care now, Bye. Patrick. Bye. Bye. I would like to say that in the Western world, they shouldn't be afraid about Islam because the truth of these revolutions is not religion. Mm. is the people are fed up. They have no future. They live miserable life, and they want a better way of living. That's the truth. Mm. They want better economic situation. 
So that's, that's what's driving it. Yes, yes, my absolutely, question, absolutely. Yeah. And you agree with that? Oh content. yeah, yeah. I mean, this, you mentioned you use the word theocracy. It's just it doesn't apply. It's incidental. It's and a, that's yeah. Yeah. why you see masses of different groups, you know, yeah. coalition together because they have the same aim. I think if you can complain about globalization for this or that reason, but one thing great about globalization is there's a young generation mm-hmm. that's not going to put up with the crap yeah. they've mm-hmm. been putting up with yeah, for absolutely. generations yeah. until now. Yeah. In our world, what we have to be more concerned is not who is going to be in power next. No, what we have to be concerned that we have to establish a good mechanism or a constitution that will run the country. Mm-hmm. And that constitution will guarantee right, civil right, political right, all type of right for the people mm-hmm. and organize. So whoever comes in power had to respect this. Accountability, yeah. Yeah, an alternative. Transition. Transition. So that we have to create a a free system. I just want to wrap up this conversation by having you give some advice to our president, whoever our president may be, to better understand how to handle this smartly. Aziz from Morocco, what advice would you give to the leader of our country? Uh, To the president Obama or president whoever come next, president of the United States. I know America support a lot of those Arab countries give them annual money and don't give any money until they sign against this to respect human rights to start with uh-huh. and adopt the democratic values and democratic. Uh, okay, so thing. use our financial aid to yeah, because that's the pressure to the, get the, the modern democracy. The modern democracy. Wow. And Colin, what advice would you give to the leader of our country? I think they need to actually embrace the change rather than seeing it as a threat and something that Mm -hmm. has to be managed. Understand that these are legitimate aspirations of these peoples and it is their fate that should be decided by them. And this is not a problem for the West. Aziz Begdori, Colin Clement, thank you very much for giving us a wonderful insight beyond what we hear on the evening news and so on about the exciting events happening all across the Arabic world. Come and visit. Thank you. <laughs> Inshallah. 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 <laughs> Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Stephen Cray at OPB Radio in Portland and to Jonathan Lee for technical help. There's more in the radio section of ricksteves.com, including links to our guests and a phone app with interviews from the show. Just look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe package at ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city, and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat, and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.